Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what do you think your dad would say today if he was still alive? Because, you know, I have read articles about him being a Republican. Was that because I mean, what are your thoughts about the origin of his political beliefs? And 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 give me some clarity on what they actually were. Well, when you think of that, you have to. My dad was very much an iconoclast. And in addition to that, that's one of the more confusing items that gets parroted throughout his narrative. Here's why he's a Republican. The same way Republicans should be proud of being Republicans. The party of Lincoln. And if you remember when my dad grew up, the most virulent racists were Dixiecrats. So those were the people, the Democratic Party, it wasn't until you got to Lyndon Johnson that you really had kind of an epiphany where you had a kind of a, a, a changing of the guard, so to speak. Republicans became the party of the few and, and the wealthy. But prior to that, it was, you know, and you got to remember the 1870s, it's not that far from 1870 to 1970. That's only with six with with uh, six year election cycles with senators. That's only six to ten years, you know, mm-hmm. six to ten cycles. So, no, when he's talking about being a young Republican, that's what that's about. But my dad was also a very firm believer in chain of command, respecting the military, but a total radical when it came to race relations. Um, you know, he was he was one of these people who believed that you should enter all races, and I'm talking like a foot race, um, and have a level playing field and make no excuses. You know, just give me a chance to be in the race. But if you're not going to let me in the race, then it's an inherently flawed system. So what he would be seeing now is he would be proud of these people. He'd be proud of his grandson. I just uh, sent some pictures out of my son who was at a protest, a peaceful protest, passing out water and fans and sunscreen to white people who were out in Texas Mm -hmm. not realizing what they signed up for. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But no, as far as his politics goes, I mean, his favorite president was Lyndon Johnson because he thought that he was an emancipator in the sense of breaking a string of poverty and an empowerment element in the black community. He's never asking for a, a handout more a hand up. I've seen it written many different ways about, would you have imagined that a man who ushered in some of the most storied names in rock and roll history um, was a young Republican from Waco, Texas? And the connotation without giving the context is that um, he's a Nixon Republican. Couldn't be farther from it. Couldn't be farther from it.
Keep Boy Go Loud and Rogue Media Network, this is Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story. I'm your host, Travis Scott, and in the previous two episodes, we have seen our Invisible Icon and Foreman at the Music Factory busy working erecting the first and second pillars of this impressive period. After exhaustively working to establish the foundations of two Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel, Tom sets his sights on the next pillar. The year is 1966. Hundreds of thousands of protesters all around the world gather daily to voice their opposition to the continued Vietnam conflict. The United States continues the race to make good on JFK's promise to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And Tom exits Columbia Records and heads to the sun-soaked beaches of Los Angeles to take on dual producer roles with MGM and Verve Records. Both companies were mostly known for their jazz recordings up to the start of the 1960s, and they were eager to take on the pop and rock music phenomenon sweeping the youth of the world. Having seen success in both jazz and pop music production, Tom would prove to be a very good fit. Now I think it's worth pausing here to recap that the former head of Transition Records, whose focus was jazz recordings, is being brought on to these record companies to help them transition from jazz to pop music. To steal a phrase from the kids at the time, that's kind of trippy. Tom immediately sets out to bring fresh new talent to the labels in a familiar fashion. He hits the local venues. It is these late nights and haze-filled clubs where Tom would find the type of counterculture acts that are making splashes all over the LA underground music scene. One such act would prove to be the quintessential band that would define a generation of hippies, outsiders, free thinkers, and above everything else, those who battle against censorship. The mothers. The Mothers of Invention formed in 1964 under the moniker of the Soul Giants. And after a dispute with the leader of the group, the band set out to find a new guitarist, inter-future Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Frank Zappa. The band started out as an R&B act, But soon Zappa convinced them to let him take on the task of songwriting so that they could catch the attention of a record label. They would change their name as well to Mothers, which is a shorthand reference to a skilled musician, or in some circles, can be considered vulgar slang for motherfucker. As in, man, did you see Zappa shred on that guitar? That motherfucker can play. (laughs) 
Mothers ended up catching the attention of a well-known manager of various L.A. talents named Herb Cohen. Herb would end up managing Mothers and later Zappa, as well as some other impressive talents throughout his career. Talents like Tom Waits, Alice Cooper, Linda Ronstadt, and perhaps the most impressive and relevant to the counterculture, anti-censorship shoulders of the time, Lenny Bruce. You know the meaning of obscenity, don't you? Perhaps you know. See, if I do a disgusting show, or use any disgusting words, or I just got to be talking about pork, uh, that's my right, you see, as an American citizen, to discuss pork on stage. Although disgust all of you vegetarians and Jews and Muslims, that is my right. And if you communists would like to suppress that right to talk about ham and pork, that's, well, that's your right. Now, if I do a vulgar show, I see. Lenny Bruce was a comedian that pushed the boundaries of what is. Uh, quote-unquote legal in comedy. He would often be pulled off stage and handcuffed by police officers who were on the sidelines monitoring shows just waiting for him to use crude language or inappropriate subject matter. Lenny is responsible in many ways for the continued push for freedom of speech. Sadly, he would die of a morphine overdose later that year at the young age of 40. In 2017, Rolling Stone magazine placed Lenny Bruce in the number three spot of best stand-up comics of all time, rightfully behind Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Herb and Tom had crossed paths professionally in the past, both having worked with Pete Seeger, and it's at Herb's request that Tom would come see the mothers perform. Tom would see them more as a blues band, with the exception of one song titled Trouble Every Day. Zappa wrote the song after witnessing the Watts riots of 1965. The afternoon ridden fires added to the chaos that is now southeast Los Angeles. Riots which had quieted down during the dust sprang again into full-scale violence this morning. The mayhem continued and new rioting flared in the southeast area, which of course was off by 10. All the stops were out like guns, knives, rocks... Now the Watts riots were a series of riots that broke out in August of 1965 after a routine traffic stop of two young black men and white police officers turns violent in the predominantly black neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles. These riots lasted for six days, resulting in 34 deaths, 1,032 injuries, 4,000 arrests, and in total involved 34,000 people. It ended with the destruction of 1,000 buildings, totaling $40 million in damages, which would be about $329 million in today's money. Witnessing these riots really flipped a switch in Zappa. Authorities can't even be sure of that. Looting was very widespread. Among broken glass, bricks, torn up pavement, looted stores, fires, and incredible destruction. Car windshields and windows in the area were cracked or entirely... On the premiere of his radio program, The Music Factory, Tom would later recount his experiences of touring with the band and touching on Frank's style of activism. You know, when we were in the foreign countries that we were visiting... Uh, the mothers of invention, and uh, little old me. We got to ask a lot of questions about what America is and what America is doing about certain things. Of course, the Vietnamese War. They wanted to know about that. What the viewpoints of the group were on those questions uh, that have to do with the war, and they also wanted to know about the riots and so forth in America. Uh, a lot of people think of the mothers as uh, being. Uh, 
rebellious, uh, outrageous, uh, camp, uh, uh, pop art, and any other number of words and ideas that you could apply to the type of uh, music that the Mothers of Invention play. And a lot of people didn't realize that that uh, Frank is a political activist. That is, he believes that uh, young people should get out and, and work to better the things that they think are wrong with our country. And uh, for that reason, he's not a flower power man. Uh, he's, he's for going out and doing something. And uh, in his first album, Freak Out, he had a song which has sort of been buried in that album for a long time. Uh, it's called There's Trouble Coming Every Day. And this song he wrote while he from his house could see the fires burning in Watts during the time of the Watts riot. And uh, if you listen to the words of this song, it's one of the most uh, important songs of this type that's been written in my estimation. So check this out. Frank Zappa, The Mothers of Invention, There's Trouble Coming Every Day. Trouble Every Day would prompt Tom to secure a record deal between the band and Verve. There was, however, a caveat, and it happened to be the band's current name. After negotiating, the band settled on their new moniker, The Mothers of Invention. You can almost hear in Frank Zappa's head when he agrees to this new version, well, mother still means motherfucker. No way to delay that trouble coming every day. In March of that year, the Mothers of Invention would record their debut album, Freak Out, and would release it in June as a double album, which was a new concept that was done for the very first time by Bob Dylan with the release of Blonde on Blonde that same month. Zappa would later recount a story of Tom being on LSD while wrapping up the final parts of this album. I tried to imagine what Wilson must have been thinking sitting in that control room, listening to all that weird shit coming out of the speakers and being responsible for telling the engineer, Ami Hadani, who was not on acid, what to do. The album was met with very little critical or commercial success, but if we know anything about Frank Zappa, we know that topping the charts was not the only intention of making music. Perhaps the album was a flop to the suits, but where it succeeded was the cementitious effect it had on the band's following to come. The Mothers of Invention had burst onto the scene with something to say, and they instantly became the darlings of the underground and counterculture music scene. On a personal level, freaking out is a process whereby an individual casts off outmoded and restricted standards of thinking, dress, and social etiquette in order to express creatively his relationship to his immediate environment and the social structure as a whole. With their debut album under their belt, the mothers immediately wanted to churn out a follow-up. But to stay with the strangeness of the time, the band would be commissioned to work with Tom on another project before that happened. Tom is asked to work on another MGM character's debut album titled The Boy Wonder Sessions. The Boy Wonder here is Burt Ward, 
better known as Robin from the popular TV show, Batman and Robin. Hi kids, it's me, your pal, the boy wonder. The pairing was indeed odd, but it showed the sense of humor that Tom could have when it came to the music he worked with. Tom tapped Zappa to arrange the music for the project with various members of the band playing the music. The straight-laced Burt Ward would have been a bird out of a cage with this group of miscreants and misfits. Magnificent, exquisite boy wonder. A cold chill runs up my spine every time I see you sock a villain. And oh, how I Burt looks back on this experience in his autobiography titled Boy Wonder, My Life in Tights. Of all the people in all the world to team up with this wild and crazy bunch, I can't believe I was the one. The image of the boy wonder is all American and apple pie, while the images of the mothers of invention was so revolutionary that they made the Hells Angels look like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Even I had to laugh seeing a photo of myself with those animals. Fresh off the eclipsing success of the Boy Wonder Sessions, the mothers wander their way back to recording their follow-up album, Absolutely Free. The album would find its way on the Billboard Top 200, where it peaked at number 43, and by the end of the year settled in at number 93 with the likes of The Beatles, The Monkees, The Mamas and the Papas, The Supremes, and Dr. Zhivago. final collaboration of We're Only In It For The Money, Tom would take a back seat on the producing role, only having an executive producer credit. He would, however, appear on the cover of the album. The idea behind the zany album cover art was, let's make fun of Sgt. Pepper's album art. There are multiple cutouts and wild ideas going on in this album cover, which I'd recommend you take a look at. And you may notice another familiar face among the fray here. It is indeed the face of Jimi Hendrix. As the story goes, Jimi was hanging in the village for the first time since going to London to jumpstart his career, and the mothers found this out and invited him to come join the photo shoot. There is some speculation that Tom is becoming distracted or perhaps too busy to give the mothers the proper attention they require. Here is Frank recalling this time. Tom was a great guy. Uh, he had a fascinating ability to read the Wall Street Journal, have a blonde sitting on his lap, and tell the engineer to add more compression to the vocal all at the same time. But by the time we started working on our third album, um, he was not talking to the engineer as much and talking to the blonde a little bit more. And so I said, well, why don't you just let me produce this? I know you have other things in your mind. and. Uh, we're Only In It For The Money was the first album that I produced. He produced the first two. It is entirely possible that Tom is becoming increasingly distracted as he continues to take on more work. 
But a theory that we have is that a common thread is starting to show. Tom is distracted by the potential next big thing, but only when he has a sense that he has completed his role where he's at. It's not that he has just wound up and set a tinker toy on its way, but more so that he knows when he's no longer needed. He can see when the talent is ready to stand on its own. And Frank Zappa is certainly a good example of this. Zappa had taken the captain's chair on producing the mother's third album, and the two would not work together again. Thanks to Tom's guiding hand, Zappa is on his way down a strange and wonderful 30-year path that would see 60-plus albums, multiple movies, an induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and would make countless lists of the top 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Tragically, Frank Vincent Zappa would succumb to prostate cancer on December 4th, 1993, just a few weeks short of his 53rd birthday. I think that one of the facets of Tom Wilson's character that I particularly enjoy is how dynamic he can be. Um, you know, we see that he leaves Columbia to go to California to work with two production companies. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing his the pace at which Tom Wilson is working at this point is really, really speeding up. You can see that, you know, he's established a pattern of how he does business. And now it's clear that he really knows what he's doing. He's hitting local venues and he's finding talent and he's putting talent to work, just churning out masterpieces like a machine. And I think there's a real beauty in being able to set a project on a course such that when you take your hands off of it, you know that it will continue to completion. Tom's vision for the long arc of what a project can look like uh, I think is really starting to show at this point in in his way of getting involved and getting out early and not waiting until the project comes to closure to jump on the next project he's already moved on to the next project and a another facet of Tom's personality that uh, I think I absolutely love the most is his sense of humor here is a clip of tom being being tom here's one that gets us into our show a little more deeply each week it's called our night nightmare pick this is the record that i as a producer as one of the most outstanding producers in the history, not only of the record business, but of all entertainment ranging as far back as the great events that they used to put on at the Colosseum in Rome. I mean, I could have staged those things uh, with much more flair than Nero or Caligula, any of those. They were pikers. And um, here are the things that are done today. Almost any idea that you mentioned, I have thought of, but I, I only have so much time so it's impossible for me to do the things that George Martin does on the one hand while I'm thinking about the things, say, that Eric Jacobson is doing with the Southwith Council and so forth. So I just don't have enough time to get around to the many great ideas that constantly stir around in my mind. So you only hear just in the few selections that do get out, you, you hear only 
some brief moment, some brief glimpse of my genius. episode of Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story, we complete the fourth part of the Music Factory years. We'll start in 1967 with Tom discovering yet another future Hall of Fame inductee with whom he produces their first three albums, the first of which the Rolling Stone would refer to as the most prophetic rock album ever made. This podcast is produced by Rogue Media Network. Our executive producers are Lindsay Lippman, Zach Burke, Jacob Green, and Katie Selman. Our director is Mike Hamilton. We'd like to give a special thanks to the voice actors for today's episode. Producer Mike Hamilton as Frank Zappa and producer Aaron Ayers as Burt Ward, the boy wonder. Our theme music is by the Bowlers. Join us for the next installment of Invisible Icon, The Tom Wilson Story. This has been a Rogue Media Network Podcast.